It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast, live. This is the podcast with the unpopular opinion that progressive centre-left politics has a lot to offer the modern world. We're recording here today at Progress Annual Conference 2018. Local elections took place across England this week, capping off weeks of campaigns and committee rooms for so many of us. So today we're going to talk about what life is really like to be a Labour activist. The branch meetings, the GCs, the LCFs, the CACs, and of course, warp sheets, which... Warp sheets. Who doesn't <laughs> love a warp sheet? I'm Connor Pope, Deputy Editor of Progress, and I'm joined by Alison McGovern, MP for Wirral South and Progress Chair. And our guest today is author John O'Farrell, who wrote the memoirs of a Labour activist, Things Can Only Get Better, which charted the 20 years leading up to the landslide victory over the Tories in 1997, and his recent follow-up, Things Can Only Get Worse, which charted the 20 years leading up to the landslide victory over our expectations last year. <laughs> John has also been a writer for Spitting Image, Have I Got News For You, and Chicken Run, with a sequel that was announced this week, which I'm very excited about. But I thought perhaps we could start kind of going back and understanding how we all came into the Labour Party. When did you go to your first Labour Party meeting, John? Um, I had been growing up in a Labour family in... Um, rock-solid socialist heartlands of Maidenhead in Berkshire. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I was like the only Labour voice at school. I remember, you know, that was quite a lonely experience. And I stood for in the school election in 1979 and got a total of 35 votes out of a possible 1,300. And then um, throughout the... I went off to university and um, was very supportive of the Labour Party there and but was involved in all sorts of left campaigns like uh, CND and Amnesty and anti-apartheid movement but it wasn't until uh, the, the the massive defeat of 1983 that I got active in the Labour Party so my first day knocking on doors for the Labour Party was general election day 1983 I just finished my finals I started being an activist. We got our lowest ever share of votes. Uh, and everyone else... Did you feel you know, that was, like, personal? Yeah, no, I like... did. It sort of got more personal as the 80s went on, because wherever I went, we did worse and worse. Um, so, yeah, um, you know, and as a student, I used to sort of turn up at parties when everyone else was leaving them. And same, same was true for the Labour Party, I'm afraid. Uh, yeah. Alison, you grew up in a Labour household, didn't you? I mean, your, your granddad was a protest singer, wasn't he? Uh, yes, yeah, so my, my, my granddad was a folk singer. Although 
he did sort of campaign in his songs and he was very active in the pensioners movement later in his life and he used to write them songs for their like very slow marches <laughs> go on so if i'm honest i think it was probably more he was more a folk singer for the guinness than he was that's a good reason and so you guys both have kids now do you kind of indoctrinate your children with the same leg of values? i think they indoctrinate me actually i mean that's been one of the great things about having kids get older i remember during the av referendum campaign i remember saying to my son who was just 18 then Oh, this isn't even the, uh, the sort of electoral reform we really wanted, what's on offer. He said, no, but this is what's on offer now. If we don't get behind it and we lose, uh, electoral reform is off the agenda for a generation. I went, whoa, <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> Shut up, go to your room. <laughs> but, um, uh, so I got behind it and I got involved in the AV campaign. It was sort of my son's sort of analysis of it. it Maybe go, yes, we've got to be focused and disciplined and get behind that. And, and say with my daughter here is uh, here today, it keeps me permanently educated on... Um, uh, permanently Big educated waves. on... Uh, on politics and gender politics. And um, she was out campaigning yesterday and uh, was uh, active in a ward where Labour made a gain. So that was fantastic. Did we beat? We beat the Tories in Clapham Common. Come on! <laughs> there's, there's, there's literally nothing that makes me like instinctively happier in my life than the feeling that someone took a seat for Labour off the Tories. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and because of the effort on the ground and a great candidate, and uh, it, was, um, it was a pleasure to, pleasure to watch. And it was really close, a split ward. So when activists go and make that difference, I think that's what we're all really about. And this is the same daughter that you mentioned in the book, had her own brownie coat. <laughs> yes, well, go on, I'll tell the ending of the book then. But when, when she was like six, she was the most angelic little, sweet little blonde thing with a little lisp. And she had to do her brownie guide promise. And she went, I promise to serve my queen, to love my God, to help other people and keep the brownie guide law. Now, I was given the job of teaching her this. So she performed it in front of her mum. I promise to help my God, serve my queen, uh, love, help other people or whatever it is. And smashed the Tories. <laughs> <laughs> and her mum was going, what on earth? What have you done? Well, she says that in front of Brown Owl. All <laughs> I said, oh, she'll be right. So anyway, she did, uh, she, she repeated it to grandma. I promise to love my God, serve my queen, help other people. And smashed the Tories. <laughs> and finally did it at the brownie thing. She said it perfectly about keep the brownie guide law. Just looked across at me and gave me a little wink. Oh, <laughs> yes. And that little wink said, said so much. She said, don't worry. I'll be yeah. out there winning Clapham Common from the Tories exactly. in, in uh, 2018. Here's to smashing the Tories. <laughs> so my, um, my first birthday was during the short campaign of the 1992 general election. Um, 83? 82? 83? 92. 92. Sorry, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, Connor's actually a small child. Yeah, yeah. In, in which my, uh, my dad was a candidate. Wow. Um, and uh, it, was a, it was a marginal seat, so they'd sent uh, TV cameras to follow him round. And obviously... If the TV says that they're coming round to follow you on the doorstep that day, you can't really go, well, actually, it's my son's birthday. So, so um, they ended up coming to my birthday party. My first birthday cake was red and yellow and said in big letters on it, vote Labour. <laughs> Which, when I tell normal people this, people who aren't involved in the Labour Party, they look at me like it's child abuse. <laughs> like, it's like, what did your birth first birthday cake say? You have no idea. Mine's brilliant. Yeah. I've got a, uh, a story about my daughter only this week because... Um, we have, we've got a nice little tradition going now, me and her, on polling day, where I take her to school, and before we go to school, we go and vote, because the polling station is just around the corner, on the way to school. And um, the first time she went, she didn't really know what was going on. Second time she went, she's a little bit interested. Now she's, she's six and a half, and she completely understands the whole process. So we walk in, she says hello to the, to the women behind the desk with the registration thing, gives them our address, they give me the ballot paper, we go in, she takes the pencil out of my hand 
uh, to put the cross, she knows where it's going. And then she was obviously doing this so efficiently that, that we come out, put the paper in their box, and the women in the polling station said to her, oh, that's lovely. Are you going to be just like mommy when you grow up? To which she says, oh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that letting yeah. your child vote for you might be illegal. I think it's illegal. Loud, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, did, I do remember saying to my daughter when she was about 14, do you want to come with me? I've waited until you got back from school to come with me to vote. She goes, Dad, you show me how to vote in like every single election. <laughs> I know it. It's if you put a cross on a bit of paper, it's not a big deal. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm just, I'm still enjoying those moments where she, she's actually, she's actually enthusiastic about these things before we hit the teenage. Yes. Kind of so, John, can I, can I ask you when you first decided to write a book about being a Labour activist? Because it's a very niche subject. Uh, do you know what? I had this idea. It was coming out. It was just in the run up to the '97 election, and. Uh, I think I was probably influenced by uh, Nick Hornby's book, Fever Pitch, which was like 18 years of Arsenal losing and then they won the championship. <laughs> and I'd read that book and thought it was a good way of writing about football. And then it suddenly occurred to me, uh, there's a little, I've got a little diary of the time and I wrote a note in it, it went, Fever Pitch of Politics? Question mark. And um, <laughs> I pitched this idea to my wife, what about a book about all those incorrect Labour Party meetings? And she said, that is the worst idea for a book I've ever heard. <laughs> but it turns out that lots of people have been to boring Labour Party meetings or of all political parties, or you know, parish council meetings sat in drafty halls and passed uh, resolutions that would make no difference to anything. And um, it was a hit. It was, a, you know, it got to, got to number one for I six can, weeks. It, I, can it, remember it, I can remember it coming out as if it was like yesterday. Me and my friend Jenny, who's always, Jenny's always my agent in elections, and we both bought it on the same day and read it in a day. Oh, wow. And one, one of my favourite bits about it is the, um, is the bit about people who can't follow an agenda. Oh, God, yeah. Agenda dyslexics, I call yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. People <laughs> who just, like, they just can't get to grips with the idea that, like, we're not talking about that now. We're talking about something else. And the thing that you're wanting to talk about will come to after the... Yeah. And, like, anybody who's ever been to a Labour yeah. Party meeting knows exactly what it is. Yeah, I mean, there's a sort of... Um, what's great is I sort of wrote about things that have been my experience and found that that had been everyone's experience. So the person in the meeting who, um, uh, you know, as you say, can't uh, follow the agenda, the person who's a mute. So you have someone who comes for years to meetings and has never said anything. You think they might just not speak English and think they're an alcoholics anonymous. You, you don't know. And then I had one in the more recent book. I had the person, this was based on our schools campaign we had in Lambeth, but the person on your side you wish would shut up. <laughs> yes. that's, that's a really strong one. This person was like, you're poised with a really delicate negotiation and they come crashing in with this crass, angry, sort of destructive comment. And you're going, oh no, you're just trying to prove how lefty and hard wing you yeah. are. I'm sorry, hard and left wing you are. The, the, the bloke wearing the top hat that shouts stop Brexit opposite Parliament springs to mind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I read your first book when I was maybe 12. Wow. And as you know, I think it was the first politics book I'd, I'd ever I'd ever read. And obviously, as we've already discovered, I possibly didn't have the most normal childhood. So I think when I finished reading it, I came down and I got, got into the kitchen. I put it down on the table. Mum said, you finished then? I went, yeah. And she went, and what did you think? I was like, well, it's all so true, isn't it, Mum? <laughs> but I think there's clearly something interesting about Labour activism because, you know, even recently with um, Labour of Love, the play that James Graham did, yeah. that did a run on the West End and was incredibly successful. I don't know if you saw it, I but, say, yeah. but it, it clearly kind of taps into something. Well, I think the most interesting writing about politics is from the people at the bottom. Mm. So you can have sort of Hillary Clinton's memoir or you can have Tony Blair's My Journey or whatever, but... 
those books are going to be so carefully sort of written and so cautious about what they reveal. Whereas I don't mind saying that I sprayed the banks with political graffiti when I was 20. If you don't do it when you're 20, when are you going to do it? <laughs> so, um, you know, my, my books were, were honest because I was a person of no significance and I had nothing to lose by saying my innermost feelings that lots of people went, yeah, I felt like that too. And that's why it struck a chord, I think. I think that's right. And one of the things about James Graham's plays is that they tell a story that's also hidden for the most part. Like the history that's written of politics is often like the thinkers, the people with the you know big clashes yeah. of ideas. Whereas the whole, there's a whole other story about the Labour Party, which is the doers, you know, whether it's... Yeah the whip's office in the house of commons um, i love that play actually the first one this house this yeah. house yeah where you actually you know the main protagonists of politics in the um, in the 70s are not there you know harold wilson and james callahan are not in it but you see for the first time the kind of the chief whip who keeps them yeah. all together and on side to that hung parliament and i think the same is true of your books you see not the kind of it's like the sort of big political figures doing telly are like somewhere yeah. else it's like how does how do you actually, you know, put one boat in a ballot box after another? Like, and in the end, that's the best thing about elections. It's like everyone counts on one, no one counts but on that, more than one, and you've got this big pile of votes at the end and you yeah. get the result. But those people, I think, are the heroes of the Labour Party. So, and they are the Labour Party. So when, um, I'm, you know, you're on the doorstep arguing about, you know, whether you're arguing about Tony Blair or Jeremy Corbyn, these are the leaders and these are the people in the soap opera of Westminster that we see on the television but when you go around the country and you talk to activists and you, you know, there's a bit I write in my book about a woman I sat next to at one um, fundraising dinner. And it's like she was, you know, uh, she left school at 16. She uh, went to work in that factory by the canal <coughs> till it closed down, uh, but they not without a fight. And now they're trying to get it converted into a, uh, an art centre and a community library. Um, but she's also running for the council and she's looking after her dad who's got Alzheimer's and she's also doing an open university degree and she volunteers for the Samaritans. And you think, God, these people are the best people in the yeah, world. Absolutely. And you meet them when you go uh, uh, get involved in your local Labour Party. You move to an area... You become an activist and you, you tap into all the progressive and um, campaigning personalities in your area. So when I stood in Maidenhead, I went down there. I stood in 2001 in, uh, in my hometown. And I thought, why, do, why are people active in Maidenhead Labour Party? What's the point? And um, without <laughs> wanting to be too rude to them. But then I realised <laughs> then that's just part of what they do. They come together for the Labour Party, but they're yeah. also the school government. Even in a Tory town like Maidenhead... Guess who's the school governors? Guess who are the people volunteering to run the youth clubs? Guess who are running Amnesty? My favourite one was looking after puppies for guide dogs for the blind. That was a good one. <laughs> I like that. I like that volunteer. But all these different campaigns, they're all Labour activists. And they, they come together and they, they meet, you know, for their Labour party. And they put up a candidate and they stand for the council. But that's not just what they're about. It's mm. about progressive politics and campaigning and changing society. I, I remember after um, the Grenfell disaster last year, and I went to a branch meeting. Um, and we discussed it because... You know, there was similar cladding in South East London where I live in, in, in our ward um, and what could be done about it. And this one bloke, after this conversation been going on for 15, 20 minutes, this one bloke put his hand up. It turned out that he was kind of like, um, you know, a safety inspector specialising wow. on architecture. He said the problem with it is that the way that the concrete was underneath the cladding was wavy. And so essentially you ended up with air pockets. Mm. And I said to people at the time, actually, if there's a fire and you're unlucky, that will just act, act like a chute and the fire will go yeah. up. And it seemed that that was entirely what happened in the end. And it just seemed remarkable. I just kind of, all of us in, in this meeting is like, actually, there is an expert among us who can actually really explain yeah. what's going on. And, and 
having that kind of community and knowing that yeah. if you go to meetings, you will meet people like yeah. that because those are the people that really do drive change in local communities. Yeah. It's a really incredible thing. It is. And, I, you know, in lots of places in our uh, country, communities could be quite segregated. Yeah. You know, there's, there's, there's places in most cities where we've got a lot of diversity, yeah. but actually... We live in pockets. We, we live in pockets. Yeah. The yeah. bar in a particular street will not be that diverse, even though it's in the middle of a diverse community. Yeah. You know, the clientele won't be that diverse. And the Labour Party is the one place in my life where that's never been true. Yeah. Where, because of the way we organise geographically, you sit in a room, by and large, imperfectly, but you sit in a room, by and large, with representatives of that local community, whoever they are. Yeah. And... I've got friends who are, you know, I've got very good friends from my constituency in Wirral South who were in their 70s, but they're no less my friends because the thing that we share is our desire to do Labour Party activism. Yeah. And how, I don't know how other people learn what's going on from people who aren't like them if they're not in the Labour Party. Yeah. Do you think there's something unique about the Labour Party and the people in it? Because um, remember, please, I think it was the EU referendum um, and I was out... Uh, knocking doors, and there was a couple of us Labour, and weirdly there was a couple of Lib Dems and a couple of Tories. Yeah. And like, obviously you kind of never go out canvassing with these people usually, so it was really interesting to see how they worked. I remember like sending one person to a, a door, and they went back, and they came back almost immediately. I was like, that was quick. They said, oh, it said, no cold callers. I was like, <laughs> so? It's like, knock on the door. Like, yeah. And they were like, oh, but it might annoy them. It's like, Probably won't, It'd probably be fine. I realised that actually all the Labour people thought it was normal and everyone else thought it was bonkers that you would knock on a door that says no cold calling. I think essentially there is something evangelical about being like, we have to go out and make sure that actually you're not voting for the wrong guys. And you're like, if, you know, I think if there was a sign on a door that said cold callers will be shot, I'd look at it for about a second and then I'd be like, yeah, yeah. But also, it's not, we're not selling, you know, we're not selling uh, dusters or, you know, uh, the Watchtower. This is about democracy. And then people sort of appreciate it on the doorstep. When, you, when they open the door, they go, oh, it's this moment. It's this moment when one of the political parties comes around. And it's <laughs> yeah. part of our culture. And people actually quite like it, I think. They do. Um, they do. And it's great fun. I mean, it's one of my most favourite things, especially, you know, say what you like about Momentum. They've brought a lot of new people into our party. And I've witnessed, you know, people doing that first door knock session. And all right, it's not for everybody, but some people you can just tell. They're really nervous at the beginning. Mm. And they go to the first door and they're not quite sure what to say. And then they have a bit of a political chat with that person. Like, oh, it's all right. It wasn't that scary. And then the next person, you know, they find somebody who's really passionate in support of Labour. And like, oh, this is great. And you, you can see people getting into it. Um, and, you know, right up until the point where you realise you've got a real problem. Because, like, if you... If you, like a few weeks have gone by and you've not knocked on any doors, you right. get that sinking feeling. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or I haven't done it recently. Like, and I'm, I'm, I'm good with people's dogs. I like that's my, that's my secret <laughs> skill. I can identify the breed and have a chat about the dog, <laughs> yeah. and then yeah. find I've been talking to a tor Tory for twenty minutes. But that's that's one of the other things that I always. So you've both about. stood for Parliament yeah. on more than one occasion. Um, John, so you originally stood in Maidenhead. Um, uh -huh. Whatever happened to the Tory candidate, though? I don't know. Theresa May. Mm. She was yeah. uh, quite unimpressive, I remember, at the time. I mean, <laughs> just, to, just to talk about that. I mean, I never, ever would have predicted, standing against her as a candidate, that she would end up Prime Minister. She was uh, quite, you know, 
average, Which, I thought. I just thought she was a, you know, uh, identity kit Tory uh, candidate. She was, um, at that point, she was front bench education, uh, but she was not someone who you thought, because I've met impressive politicians in my life. Mm. You know, I've met Gordon Brown or even Michael Patillo on the other side or Boris Johnson. Whatever I think of him, I think, well, he's got some ambition and some, some ideas. But never with her did I think, wow, she is going to the very top. She would do, we would do this thing in the uh, panel on the uh, candidates' debate and the, the local Tory council had made some cuts and she would always say, the council have had to make some very tough decisions. And then we're on another panel and she said, the Conservative council have had to make some very tough decisions. So I thought, I'm going to get in ahead of her next time. So I said, Theresa May will probably just say that the council have had to make some very tough decisions. And I could see her face <laughs> freeze over going... Oh no! I've got to come up with an original sentence. I've got to got to think on my feet. And it came to her, and she went. The the councillor had to make some very tough decisions. <laughs> she couldn't do it. And I thought that was just her then there not being bothered to try very hard in a rock solid um, rock solid Tory seat. But no, we found out in the last election that's what she's like. She really doesn't have that bit of DNA that you think all politicians have. That seems incredibly telling now about the 2017 exactly, election. Yeah. When people went, oh yeah, strong and stable. She went, oh God, you know about that. Yeah. <laughs> I, thought that was, yeah. I thought that was the, the clincher. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But did, um, before you stood in 2001, you'd been a writer on Have I Got News For You and before that on Spitting Image, which I'm too young, but apparently was a big deal. It was a big deal. Did... Standing for Parliament change your perception of politicians, do you think? It was a moment. And the, I mean, it's funny because I've always been taking the mickey out of politicians. And, you know, uh, and during the day, my day job was being a satirist for Spitting Image, if I got news for you, Radio 4. And then in the evening, I'd be out campaigning to try and get a certain brand of politician <laughs> elected. When I stood for Maidenhead, it was a bit of a laugh, really. We knew we couldn't win. It was like an election we were guaranteed to win. I went into it. It was every vote doesn't count. Come on, let's give this 50%. Uh, that was... Um, that was a great uh, uh, relief, really, after the knife-edge votes I'd been involved with in, uh, in Battersea and Wandsworth and places where, where the Tories were, were creeping up and taking seats off us. So that was, it was fun and a laugh. But on election night, there was this... Well, I'd canvassed this bloke during the election, and he said, um, well, I'll vote for anyone who can get me my free glasses. And I went, oh, well, look, I'm, not, I'm not an MP or anything, and I'm not even a councillor. He goes, you will be, though. When you were elected, I said, well, look, I, I may not be elected. He goes, well, look, I'm on incapacity benefit and I'm not income support. I should be getting free spectacles. I said, look, I really don't know anything about this. I'll write a letter. I'll write a letter, okay? So I wrote a letter. Went and knocked on his door on election night. Oh, it's him. He goes, oh, told you I'd vote for you if, I, if you got me my free glasses. I said, no, I'm sorry. I did write a letter, honestly. He goes, I know. And here they, here they are. I've got my glasses. They gave them to me. Your letter made them check. And I can read, and I thought, oh, that's what it's all about, actually. Yeah, that's what politics that's is really changing on the ground, you know, winning little battles for ordinary people every day of the week. And you just don't get that on the telly. You don't get Andrew Neil going to Wirral South and seeing what you've done for your constituents, the little battles you've fought and the people you've brought together and the campaigns that have been won and the schools that have been saved. And it sort of, I drove away from Maidenhead sort of seeing things a little bit more clearly, thinking, you know, maybe I shouldn't be quite so cynical. About five minutes later, I was writing spitty image sketches. Again. <laughs> but, that, but that narrow window, I was feeling quite evangelical about it. And that's why you stay in in the end, because it becomes mm. like a compulsion. You know, you get that little victory. For yeah. I can remember the first piece of casework I ever did. I could tell you all about it, you know, the details. <laughs> I can practically recite the letter I wrote. 
you do you get a little win and then you're like, oh well, I'll fix that. Maybe I could do something a bit bigger. And it's a bit like a drug addiction. No, but it's like, <laughs> you're like, oh, I just, I just, there's this other problem over there that we need to fix now. And you stay in because the more you have those little victories, the more it keeps you in it, despite all the frustrations and you know, people shouting at each other on television, that kind of thing. Yeah. You just stay in because you That's, can get things done. But it is very frustrating when people think politics is what happens on telly or what they see on the evening news, and we know it's so much more, and that the characters and the individuals have so much more to offer than just the sound bites we hear on the telly. Mm. And so you ran um, a polling day committee room this Thursday. I, I, I hosted it. I can't say I oh, ran you, it. You yes, didn't so. run it. So no, you're I not one of I, those people who shoes people. I have done that in the past. Yeah, I've been the, I've been the uh, table organizer. I mean, I've done every job there is really down, <laughs> down in the in sort of in the. 40 years that I've been uh, involved in sort of left politics. But um, no, I was sitting at, uh, I was in my kitchen and uh, my phone went and um, somebody said, hello, it's the Labour Party here. We're just checking whether you uh, were aware there's an election on today and you're going to vote. I said, I can actually see you making this call. You're <laughs> sitting in my kitchen, ringing me up off your list. <laughs> I've, I've been in committee rooms where people have removed the kettles to stop activists having a cup of tea yeah. when they get back from the yeah. round. It's like, go out on another round. Yeah. Yeah. My favourite moment in the 2017 general election. Okay, so, you know, let's be honest. A lot of us thought it was going to go a very different way from the way it actually went. Yeah. And um, without going into great, long, complicated detail, the targeting strategy in Wirral South was one that was designed to make sure that we, you know, we could just win this marginal. Wow. Um, it turned out I won by 8,000 votes. But <laughs> we, were, we were still, like, looking at all these undecided people thinking, you know, we need to go and knock them out. And, uh, and at a certain point, the great Sheila Murphy, who was running the campaign centre, who people from the North West will know used to be the regional director and is an absolute... Well, we're basically all terrified of her, mm. is essentially how it works. She's an incredible organiser. The, the great is. Sheila Murphy was running the committee room. And at seven o'clock, as people are drifting back wanting a sandwich, and she's looking at these sheets of undecided people, most of whom hadn't voted yet, puts a table in front of the kitchen door and a pile of um, uh, warp sheets on it and says, right, dinner is cancelled, get out. <laughs> yeah. And uh, everyone sort of like quaked and then went and got the links and like carried on knocking. I, Sorry, I, Sheila, for telling that story, think, but you know. I can see Alison's organiser from the election last year grinning over there, who's um, a real, real pain in the arse. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've already been told the story uh, today about this Thursday, people eating a sandwich in a, yeah. in a committee room. And him going, we're, we're ready for another round. It's like, we're just eating the sandwich. You can eat outside. <laughs> I, uh, eat I, as you go. Come on. When I stood in Maiden, I actually had my mum and dad, uh, you know, in the constituency, which is, uh, which is an interesting uh, extra bonus. So on uh, election day, we had um, my brother's car, which is a beaten up old sort of Ford Sierra with some Labour stickers stuck on the side. And he'd rented us some speakers. And then they came out and did the, did the thing. My mum was on the tannoy going, vote for my son, <laughs> vote for John. And, uh, you know, and then my dad had to go and he was getting on a bit then. And uh, there was this was strange shaped microphone that he was through him for a minute because he had a curly wire and he, he put the thing headset to his mouth and went, hello. And um, <laughs> the voters of Maidenhead were treated to this uh, vision of this car going down the high street, booming out the message, no, darling, it's not a telephone. I'd love to vote for John. And then an Irish voice comes over with a thing, don't fucking tell me what to do. <laughs> and still we lost. This is, this is why if you haven't read uh, John's books, you really, really should. No, but bless her, they came on the, um, she was, I went, I went, because I had to go, you know, I was standing at Theresa May in a Roxbury Tory seat. Uh, I was, um, I had to go on the, on, on the radio, radio 
Thames Valley or whatever it was, radio, BBC Radio Berkshire for the, for the candidates debate. And I said to my mum, they're all going to be against me. They're all going to be so hostile. And uh, she goes, oh, you'll be all right, darling. So I'm sitting there on, with Theresa May on one side at this radio studio and, and the Liberal on the other. And this voice comes on the phone in that I recognise as my mum. <laughs> my mum had rung up to say she agreed with John O'Farrell. And, uh, and the host said, on what issue? On all of them. On all of them. I agree with John O'Farrell. Sorry, caller, what's your name? It's Mrs. O'Farrell's Joy. Joy. <laughs> Bless them. Yeah. Was it experiences like that that um, uh, made you want to give it another go and well, the Eastleigh by election? Well, do you know what? I said to myself, I'm never going to do it again. I have great admiration for, for politicians and the work they do, but I like being a writer. And, you know, I thought, well, that's, um, that's you know, I'm, I'm, I feel like, you know, doing the thing I've always wanted to do. But then the Eastleigh by election came along and I got a phone call from Ed Miliband's office. And he said, John, would you, how do you feel about going down and campaigning in Eastleigh? I said, uh, maybe, which day were you thinking of? And they went, all of them, we want you to be the candidate. <laughs> uh, and um, this was because they were just uh, worried about this Labour, sorry, this Tory Liberal marginal. You know, the two of them were going to be fighting it out. They were in coalition at the time. They thought Labour's going to disappear. They thought at least some journalists had heard of me and I'd They'd seen, knew that I knew how to talk on camera and I'd been on Question Time and Grumpy Old Men and things. So at least I had a little bit of a profile that might help Labour avoid disappearing completely. I did avoid list disappearing completely because I was all over the sun and the telegraph <laughs> and the mail is, uh, is Ped, Ed's pal the sickest man in politics? <laughs> uh, all my jokes from all my books were taken out and used against me. And um, it was quite interesting. I'd have doors slammed in your face and Twitter hate mail and all this stuff going on. And um, yeah, it was a, it was an education on the on the British psyche and bad spelling as well. It's a very bad spelling on Twitter. It was, it was kind of, it must have been awful, but like it was very funny for those of us who'd like, Mm. You know, things can only get, get better. It was like a text you could practically recite. Yeah. You see all of this as news. I know. I know. This stuff that was like um, the Daily Mail had uh, unearthed. The investigative reporter had unearthed a secret about me that I'd published in a best-selling yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um It felt very old-fashioned because obviously people now tend to, um, you know, have those kinds of storms after stuff they've said on Twitter. It's like, I do think you've said it in a book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How did you even get to write a book? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that was a, it was a, a you know, we, uh, the thing, the weird thing about Easley was it was the sort of when the UKIP breakout started, really. And I could sort of feel it on the ground. You sort of feel that we're the opposition to the government. They're both the government, the Tories and the mm. Liberals. And so people, aren't they going to come to us? And I started out at 100 to 1, went down to 12 to 1 to 6 to 1 with the book is... And then suddenly, when they opened the post, some of the postal votes halfway through the campaign, I went straight out to 101. I went, oh, this is, this is serious. They, they, um, UKIP are really making inroads here. And I'd, you'd be talking with it. it was a, and it was fashionable. You know, it was, there's a lot of fashion in politics. And I think that's something we don't talk about. You know, we talk about the, what we achieved in terms of the Labour landslides in 97, 2001. But we were fashionable. And now mm. um, uh, momentum is fashionable. And uh, there was a point in the sort of, you know, 2008, 2010, when Labour politics was really unfashionable. And um, we shouldn't lose sight of what we, we, you know, these aren't necessarily responses to policies all the time or where you stand. It's just what people get behind. UKIP became really fashionable. I remember arguing with this Polish uh, woman saying, she says, well, everyone says that they're voting UKIP, so I'll vote UKIP. And I'll go, okay, you do understand what they stand for. And it was like, maybe she did agree with all their policies, but I'm not sure she did. Um, So where were you for election night? Last year? Uh, I was at home and we had that thing of, you know, the funny mix of people who come around, people who've been knocking on doors that day, someone you met in the pub, yeah. you know, just at the end of, uh, as polls closed. Who are now uh, your, like, best friends. Best friends, yeah. yeah. yeah in life. 
They only I mean, smile at you because you were in a sticker. That's yeah. right, yeah. <laughs> and then some, somebody wants to come around and see it with you, and there's all the different sort of people that you watch election night with. And this is another cast list that I sort of identified. There's the sort of Phoebe from Friends who sort of said, no, is he a Tory? No, no, that's, uh, that's Nate Robinson. Actually, he is a Tory. Um, <laughs> uh, it's, uh, you know, and then there's the, the pessimist and someone who goes, oh, no, we've lost Surrey Southwest. They'll never, <laughs> oh, they'll never no. get a Labour government again. Then there's the cephalogical bore who is going, oh, well, that seat changed as well. There's been minor boundary changes now. We actually won it in a by-election in 1929, so that's very good. That's me, sadly. <laughs> uh, and um, and uh, we stayed up longer and longer and longer. Um, and I just remember the moment that exit poll came, my, brother, my son was just walking up the, uh, the, the front path with his girlfriend. And I was like dancing in the hall. He was going, oh, this looks quite promising. You know? so, <laughs> um, I don't think any of us foresaw that we were going to gain 10 percentage points on what uh, Ed Miliband had achieved. And that was a, uh, an amazing sort of step forward, really. But I, I just feel that we, we got that, if we got that sort of a bit earlier, and we might have stopped Brexit and we might be in a very different place. So it sort of came a bit late. Yeah. 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 Although, you know, it's part of being in politics. It's Mm. never too late. No. No. And actually, no no defeat is ever, you know, final. Um, No, exactly. And that's why uh, um, um, at this conference this morning, Alistair Campbell was talking about Brexit and saying, well, you don't say, well, that vote happened and that's the end of it. We think the opposite way and we're going to continue to argue the opposite way just as if you lose the general election. You don't go, well, Thatcher won, so we'll always campaign for Thatcher policies. <laughs> no, we keep campaigning for what we believe in and, uh, <laughs> and being against Brexit is one of them. So I, 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 um, as the exit poll came in last year, I, I'd been up in um, rural south campaigning for Alison. I was running a committee room all day and uh, about quarter to ten, I'd gone through the returns they looked dreadful. I was like, oh, they voted against us, they voted against us. So yeah. Why have we been knocking on these doors? Yeah. And then, um, so when the exit poll came in, I was, I was in a car driving on the way to the count, um, and the bloke driving is this enormous guy called Tony, who was fantastically elected as a Labour councillor for the first hey, time totally on Thursday night. Um, and the result came in, and he just started beating his, uh, his steering wheel and shouted, fuck, fuck, yes! <laughs> and then grabbed me and like put me in a headlock. Um, and he'd been out of the doors all day, so he didn't smell great either. <laughs> I was just really worried that he wasn't looking at the road. But I, in, my, in the back of my head, I go, oh my God, it's going to be hung parliament. And we've still lost Wirral South. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I actually didn't go and campaign in... Uh, my, I used to always campaign in Battersea because that's where I was an activist all through my 20s. And I live in a sort of solid, uh, solid Labour seat. Uh, and 100 yards away is Battersea. So I thought, you know, I, I used to always go and campaign there and try and get um, Alf Dubs back in or Martin Linton in or whatever. But I didn't bother this time. I thought, there's no way we're going to win Battersea. Uh, so I went over to Hounslow with Cabri and went down to Tooting uh, for Rosanna. And... Um, uh, even then I thought, well, this is not great. But we won, we won Battersea by a mile. We won those other two by a mile. And it was, uh, uh, you know, it was great. And just the, there was a really interesting dance being done by Labour activists because we all thought we were going to get slaughtered. And you could just, um, you, you could just, they were testing each other out, whether they were pro or anti-Corbyn. Sort of <laughs> very polite sort of like, uh, so... Um, you think we're going to do really, really well then with the radical policies? Well, I, let's just get through the campaign and see. <laughs> then we can all, when, we go absolute, when we're slaughtered, then we can all rip each other to throw it shreds. But until then, we're having this uh, polite facade that we're can keeping I, up. Can I just ask you about Alftops? Yes. You mentioned Battersea and, and, and the great Alftops. Mm. For those of us who are aficionados, I think this can only get better. He has a, he had a great place in you know, our, our party's history, but he's had 
He's become this amazing figure, this towering figure over yeah. refugees. Was it always there? Did you always I used to sit in his office because that... I was a volunteer, or not a volunteer, I, was a, I worked for him in the House of Commons when I was uh, 22, 23. And um, he, an MP had the power to stop an immediate de- deportation from Heathrow if a call came through for an MP. So he was doing this quite a lot. But other MPs would ring up and say, or, or, or organisations, Refugee Council or whatever, say, can you just stop this boat being sent home? He shouldn't be sent home. I'd hear Alf on the phone. And he talked about his own experience uh, uh, as a, a small child uh, fleeing from uh, Nazi-occupied Czechoslovakia. He remembered having to give the Nazi salute in his classroom. And he was brought over, it turns out, by the Kinder Transport by Nicholas Winton. And um, he, uh, so he brings an enormous amount of moral authority to this debate about refugees. Uh, he, it was the most gutting thing to me at a 25-year-old when we lost Battersea in 87 to the Tories and a shock result then. Um, and that's probably been the most painful defeat for me ever in the Labour Party. I was working for him, I lost my job and I lost my boss at the same time. I lost, we lost Alf and that was really gutting. We lost again in 92. But then he went to the Lords, and I remember that time I think, oh, don't go into the Lords, Alf. But he's been amazing in the Lords, and I respect and admire what he's done there. Um, and we've become long, lifelong friends, and the new book is dedicated to Lord Dubbs. Mm. Uh, and um, I went to stay with him in the Lake District uh, last summer, and we talked about refugees and what he's doing and with the Dubbs Amendment. And it's quite modest, and he's played it really smart. You know, he's like not put specific numbers on the number of refugees and, and, and got in some reasonable Tories and worked with them. And he's just kept plugging away on this very, very clear moral issue and um, using the system that we have, which is the House of Lords. And he always apologises for being a Lord. You know, he always gets <laughs> elected. Yeah, well, we'll get past that. And, uh, and he's been the sort of lifelong inspiration to me, really, because he's like so he's got exactly the same energy uh, that he had back in the 80s. But now, and now he's you know, in his 80s fighting for a really great cause. He really is one of those people that when you talk about kind of politicians that actually don't deserve the kind of name, the mm. bad name mm. that politicians mm. get. He's absolutely one of them. The work that he's still doing uh, now is is absolutely astonishing. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I'm afraid we don't have much longer left. We're not going to have time for questions from the audience. But 
Um, every week on the podcast, we do do one political pub quiz question. It's my favourite bit, this. But as it's live, we're going to do 10 questions. We're going to do a little quiz, which Alison loves. I hate quizzes. <laughs> the way we'll do it, we'll do, we'll do it the same as we did for the last live one. So John and Alison, you'll be on a team. I'll ask you a question. If you get it wrong, I'll throw it out to the audience. Shout out. I feel, I feel you might be better Is this at this. a buzz or we jump in or do I you just, just yeah, talk I'm, loudly over the woman? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, like all television panel yes. quizzes, essentially. Yeah. Yes. Um, but last that time... was a ha-ha politics of comedy joke. <laughs> <laughs> the last time we did it, Alison complained that there wasn't uh, a football round. Oh, no. So we're going to start with five football questions. I won't, we won't top these up at the end. We'll, we'll, we'll keep this separate. But... Specifically for you, oh, no, Alison. This is, this is um, really bad. Is the answer to all of them Blackburn? I'm not going to give you the answers right. before. <laughs> Who won the FA Cup in 1884? Blackburn. Yeah. Who won the <laughs> FA Cup in 1885? Blackburn. Yeah. Who won the FA Cup in 1886? Uh, the Wanderers. Royal Engineers. Blackburn. Yeah. No. <laughs> um, I can tell you, 1880. <laughs> Who won the FA Cup in 1880? Uh, was that? Old Etonians? No, it's Clapham Rovers. Where I'm Clapham from. Clapham Rovers. Oh, really? Clapham Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> um, who were the runners up in the FA Cup in 1975? Fulham. Fulham. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only time they've been to Wembley. They might be going this year with the playoffs. And on this day in 2007, Fulham beat Liverpool 1 0 to avoid relegation from the Premier League. I was there. Who scored their first goal for Fulham to avoid relegation? What year was this? 2007. Oh, 2007. Oh, no, I wasn't Ooh. at that Fulham game. I was at the uh, one where Yossi Ben Ayoun scored in the last minute. To... We, we've got someone in the audience. No, no, you know, no, it's, 2007. It's a Fulham legend. Um, 2007, was it Louis Sahar? No, can we throw it out? Clint Dempsey. Come on, the audience. Last, when, we did this at, when we did this at Progress uh, Political Weekend, it's fair to say that Wes Streeting and I, you're much better than Wes Streeting. In many ways. <laughs> like, Wes and I knew absolutely nothing about the history of British politics and the audience saved us. So, like, I am holding out for all you guys to be the, uh, the heroes. All right, well, thank you for that football round. I thoroughly enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we've got 10 questions now. I'll be putting them to you first and then we'll go to the audience. Alex, are you all right to tot up the... She'll let us know who's won in the end. All right, so question one. Today we celebrate whose 200th birthday? Karl Marx. Karl Marx is correct. Question... Also Tony Blair's birthday, isn't it? Oh no, it? I think it is. Is it not? I thought I saw some... Someone in here must know, when's Tony Blair's birthday? <laughs> <laughs> no Tomorrow, idea. there we go. Tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad. Today, I always get those two mixed up. Today Karl Marx, tomorrow Tony Blair. <laughs> the first line of the song, Things Can Only Get Better, is You Can Walk My Path. You Can Wear My Shoes. What is the Very second good. line? You Can Wear My Shoes. <laughs> Obviously. The first line of the book, Things Can Only Get Better, is Maidenhead. What is the second line? The slag heaps and the... Maidenhead, the slag Oh, I can't remember the slag heaps and the... The slag heaps and the dirt. Oh, I think, yeah. we, I think we, we can they do that. They the Labour vote. <laughs> I sort of should know that. <laughs> this is a, a question that I do basically like every two weeks on the podcast. Mm. Who's the leader of UKIP? <laughs> <laughs> we never know. Uh, is it... Gerald Batten still. Nearly. Gerard Batten. Gerard Batten. Oh, oh come enough. on, good Gerald, enough. Gerard. Points there. Yeah. Which Northern Irish parliamentary seat had a by-election this week? It's West Tyrone. West Tyrone. 
Uh, Orla Begley won it for the Sinn Féin uh, after the previous MP had to resign after putting uh, a loaf of bread on his head in an offensive manner. <laughs> uh, no, it is... A, no, I, no I think it was. It's <laughs> Kingsville Massacre. If Jeremy Corbyn becomes Prime Minister, he'll be the first Labour PM not to be a member of which group? The Fabian Society. The Fabian yeah, Society. Yeah, there we go. Are you, are you uh, on the Fabian exec? I am on the Fabian exec. There was a certain point where the Fabian Society had more members in the House of Commons than the Tories. <laughs> <laughs> what, in, what, in the late 90s, I presume? Yeah. Like the Tory MPs, yeah. right, yeah. In 1997, if the Tories had lost one more seat, you would have been able to travel from Land's End to John O'Groats without ever setting foot in a Conservative constituency. What a day. But which Yorkshire Tory seat, safe seat ruined that? Richmond? No. It's going to be a big one, that. York? No, it's going to be big. No. It's going to be a big countryside one. Mm. It's changed now, so it no longer exists, this constituency. There's a clue for you. Something on Letterdale or Letterdale or something. <laughs> I'll make Does it up later. Does anyone know? Grimsby, no, uh, slightly like further north than that. Right? Further north than Grimsby. Arden? Thursk and Moulton. Thursk and Moulton is technically correct. It was back then, it was called uh, Rydale. But Rydale. that is definitely one for the audience there. Well oh, done. There we go, Arden. Which foreign prime minister used to work for Tony Blair? Uh, would that be, um, this sounds very sexist, but Stephen Kinnock's wife? Nope. Good guess, though. It's a current uh, oh, okay. So, uh, is it Jacinda Ardern? Jacinda Ardern, the new Prime Minister of New Zealand. What did she okay. do? I can't remember. Oh, oh I don't know. Just worked there. <laughs> <laughs> Who was the first woman elected to the British Parliament? Elected to would be Countess Markovitz. It is. Constance. Fantastic, Con yeah. Con Con yeah, Constance. Constance, was it Count? Yeah, they used yeah. to call her the Countess because oh, right. she was married to right. a member of the aristocracy. Yeah, Constance good, Markovitch. Good trick question, because it always causes a big argument, because everyone goes Nancy Aston. Yeah, well, I, she I took thought, her seat, but Markovitz didn't. I, yeah, I was kind of hoping that you would you fall, fall for that, for that trap. No, and I'd be like, ha, 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 but no, you've ruined that by being too knowledgeable. <laughs> now, since the seat was formed in 1997, in which general election did Labour get its highest share of the vote in Maidenhead? Uh, I would say 2017. Yep, you got that completely right. <laughs> Pat McDonald received 19% of the vote in Maidenhead last year. John O'Farrell received 15% in 2001. Things can only get better. Yeah. yeah. I think that probably is all we have time for today. But thank you so much for coming in. It's lunch now, so you'll be able to go and spend an hour. But thank you all for coming and thank you so much for John O'Farrell. <laughs> You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast. The music was When in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons. And many thanks to the brilliant Caroline Crampton, who produced this podcast. <laughs>